0: Hi, I'm Nick Pye.
1: And I'm Justin Wright, and welcome to The Stretch Tapes. Our focus today is the almost mythical thing in modern business and marketing called the big idea. It's a bit of a cliche, yet true to say we live in an increasingly noisy world. It's estimated that in the USA, you'll receive up to a mind-boggling three and a half million commercial messages a year, which is nearly as many as 10,000 a day. As a result, we've all become experts at screening this stuff out. It's ironic that at a time when the number of media channels through which we can deliver our messages has never been greater, actually getting the message landed has never been harder. The bar's been raised for any business or brand looking to engage their audience or stakeholders. The challenge is to stand out and to get noticed, preferably for the right thing in the right way, and for something that ultimately drives growth. This sets the scene for the hero of our piece today, The Big Idea. This is a concept generally used and talked about in B2C marketing, but it's as relevant to any hard-to-reach audience. We've used this thinking in B2B and even in situations where we're communicating between businesses and governments. But before we get started in earnest, a quick reminder of who we are and why we're here. We run a business called Mangrove, which helps companies grow and stretch. We work with a range of global businesses, mid-sized fast growers and startups, including five of our own. Big ideas, I guess, are sort of inherent in what we do every day. And we've always been really interested in new ideas and the success factors that drive personal team and business growth. We even went as far as capturing our collective learnings and researching other fields beyond business, like elite sport and the military, and flipped it all into our book called Stretchonomics, which is packed with ideas both big and small. And Whilst Nick loves a business book, that's not for me. Give me an infographic or an executive summary. It just shows me how to apply the theory. So in these podcasts, we try to explore our topics in a balanced way that keeps us both happy, covering the purist view and the pragmatist.
0: Yep, we've been looking at exploring complex topics with a range of experts from the world of business, brand, and beyond. And as we'll see, the concept of the big idea is relevant to pretty much anyone looking to land a message with an audience, be it a CEO with their investors, a big business looking to land a contract, or even a consumer goods company looking to engage consumers. It's a task which more often than not falls into a marketing or a business development lap. But as we'll hear, the implications are far reaching beyond these teams. Marketing, like many facets of business, is facing a challenge to resolve a fundamental tension. That tension is between efficiency and effectiveness. We've seen the rise of productivity, of efficiency in business. And with the recessionary pressures sparked by COVID, I think we'll only see this increase. Its proponents argue that we live in a world where it's survival of the leanest. There is no room for error. And this necessarily leads to a virtuous or vicious cycle of short-termism, a cause and effect approach to managing a business. This, according to its critics, myself included, comes at the expense of the things that will really make a difference, the outsized discoveries. These are less easy to measure and less linear and harder to find. This duality is often framed as a choice, but as Jeff Bezos wrote in his letter to the Amazon shareholders last year, there's a need for both. He argues that we need an ability to execute a plan as well as the time for the less scientific art of wandering.
1: Shall I read the quote in my best Jeff Bezos accent?
0: Yes, please, about the quote, and no thank you on the accent.
1: Okay, to yourself. I think what he actually said was, sometimes, often actually in business, you do know where you're going, and when you do, you can be efficient put in place a plan and execute. In contrast, wandering in business is not efficient, but it's also not random. It's guided by hunch, gut, intuition, curiosity, and powered by deep conviction that the prize for customers is big enough that it's worth being a little messy and tangential to find our way there. Wandering is an essential counterbalance to efficiency. You need to employ both. The outsized discoveries, the non-linear ones, are highly likely to require wandering.
0: Well done. Uh, I think what's interesting in that is that Bezos sees the two in combination being central to Amazon's success, whereas too many businesses look to choose one over the other. This may be more true post-COVID, with the temptation to batten down the hatches and cut costs. But surely now is the time not just to react and to reboot in the short term, but also simultaneously reinvent and reimagine in the longer term. More than most functions, marketing has in recent years become more short-term focused. I have some sympathy for BBH Labs' rather sweeping statement that modern marketing and by association business is, as they say, defined by the perfection of means and the confusion of ends. We're getting more efficient at delivering average. Ouch.
1: That quote certainly stoked an interesting conversation at that dinner we hosted last summer.
0: Yeah, it was a bit provocative, but that open and frank discussion we had over dinner involved a range of leaders from businesses as diverse as Facebook, Tesco, BP, Diageo, Walgreens, Alliance Boots, as well as some well-funded startups. The conversations, if you remember, soon turned to the role of technology and how it's generally driving short-termism and that marketing is focusing increasingly on immediate behavior change.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can see the appeal, but in my mind, this is in danger of blurring the boundaries between marketing and sales.
0: Agreed. It seems to be driven by the age-old principle of that which is most easily measured, gets managed and gets the most attention. And when you think about the fact that many CMOs stay enrolled for less than a couple of years, you can understand why speed to impact is so important. Anyway, once this relatively bleak picture of modern marketing had been painted, there was also some advocacy for the combination of technology that connects at speed and scale and often with pinpoint accuracy with a powerful big creative idea that builds a deep and longer term relationship between brands and their target audiences.
1: Yeah, that's right. So as a consequence, we thought the power of the big idea is something that warrants further investigation, hence the podcast. What the hell are they? Where are they found? How can they best be managed, especially in the corporate environment? I think as marketeers, we don't help ourselves here. Big ideas are often talked about examples given, but rarely defined. So Nick, give me an example of what you would consider to be a big idea.
0: Well, I'll give you one that's certainly had a lot of airtime over the last couple of years and even actually was a point of discussion at our dinner, and that's Nike's Dream Crazy campaign with Colin Kaepernick. The underlying idea of believing in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, is a powerful thought, and it was executed in a highly relevant and controversial campaign that transcended brands, sport, and even actually became a newsworthy stance in and of its own right.
1: Yeah, nice. I think it ended up being a bigger idea than even they could have imagined. I'd say big ideas generally fall into two categories. The first is the big idea, which is at the core of the creation of a new thing, the what. So that might be an innovative new product, a new technology, a new brand, or even a business. And these are really important. They're more occasional, but probably the topic for another podcast.
0: So in this category, you'd put the big idea of social media app for making sure, sharing short videos we've seen so much of recently, like TikTok, right?
1: Correct. The second type of big idea is your Nike example. It's a creative idea that helps your brand and business stand out and connect with its audience. It's the how rather than the what. When they work well, they hang around for some time, building brand equity and affinity. But also let's not forget, they do change behaviors, but over a longer time frame than the tech driven executions we talked about earlier. These kinds of big ideas are often what your brand or business becomes famous for. In the words of one of our contributors, it becomes the banner under which to march. And it's this kind of big idea that matters now more than ever in a noisy world with low levels of differentiation. Think of this kind of big idea as an amplifier, the brilliant execution that can turn an average product or brand into a huge success. Some studies suggest big creative ideas can increase in-market success by a factor of 12. So look, I think it's a surprise to me that marketing in general has lost its mojo when it comes to this kind of big idea. When I trained at PNG twenty-five years ago, we understood the importance of getting your fundamental brand strategy and creative brief sorted, so you could give your agencies the very best chance of finding the big idea to make the expected impact. Admittedly, PNG was never the most creative in this regard, but we knew a big idea when we saw one, and the business would invest behind it for a sustained period of time.
0: Twenty-five years, eh? Look how far you've come. I know. I think <laughs> I think the way you describe the big idea makes me think that it's a topic that brings together two Key themes that pretty much any business is facing at the moment. The first is risk. It's a topic that we've dug into in a previous episode. But here, the fundamental question is whether it's better to do something you know is average and for it to go unnoticed or to push the boundaries in a way that would change the business or backfire, like the Nike example. The second is creativity, which seems to be at the core of the concept of the big idea. The myth of the light bulb moment certainly takes a hammering from our guests. There are not many big ideas out there because they're harder work than the average run-of-the-mill ideas and they require different behaviours to support them. They're therefore much more talked about than done.
1: We'd better crack on and hear from the real experts. We spoke with two of them with plenty of hands-on experience who are kind enough to be open and honest on such a slippery topic. We spoke to Philip Gladman, who is CMO at William Grant & Sons. For those unfamiliar with their business, they're a mastermind behind category rule-breaking and quirky brands such as Hendrix Gin, Monkey Shoulder Whiskey, and Sailor Jerry Rum, as well as icons of the whiskey world, Grants, Glenfiddich, and Balvenie. Using Big Ideas, they've been successful in competing well beyond their size in some of the most competitive markets in the world. Prior to his current role, Philip had stints at Diageo, looking after Smirnoff at its peak, and before that, at Procter & Gamble. We wanted to get his take on what he's looking for and how he tries to nurture and manage Big Ideas within agencies within his teams as well as his view of some of the upsides and downsides associated with big ideas. As you'll hear, he's no fan of the six out of ten ideas.
0: We also spoke to Toby Allen, who, according to the Drum magazine, is, along with his creative partner, Jim Hilson, the number one creative in advertising in the world at the moment. He's a multi-award winning deputy executive creative director at AMVBBDO. Much of his recent work has been centered around his role in Viva la Vulva and the blood normal work with Bodyform and Libres, which has won pretty much everything at Cannes over the last few years for its role in destigmatizing periods. It's what he calls a three year overnight success. Prior to that, he cut his teeth in several agencies legendary for their creativity, such as BBH and Widening Kennedy, working on brands like Audi and Nike. So, with the introductions done, let's get started. We'll start with Philip, who's talking about. What big ideas mean to him?
2: I guess the really hard thing is trying to define what is a big idea. It can be something quite linear, but it's of the moment and in the zeitgeist, and so it works. Are brands sponsoring the Olympics big ideas? Not especially, but they can work really hard for them. Or it can be something completely countercultural. Hendrix, completely countercultural. Monkey Shoulder, completely countercultural the difference a lot of the time is the time frame Hendrix 10 year overnight success Monkey Shoulder 15 year overnight success if you look through the history of Hendrix it was tried to be killed by the company at least five times and Monkey Shoulder absolutely and utterly failed in its original test market and then another market went oh we need a cheap malt in France can we have some of that and they launched it and then it evolved over time A lot of the time, if you're going really countercultural, you do have to have patience and you just got to be very clear with your budgets and very willing to lose money for a while and to constantly tweak and change and adapt as the new trendy word is now pivot. You do that, then the chances are you might get something out the other side. I mean, William Grant is probably renowned for being one of the most successful innovators in the drinks industry. Our 20-year success rate is 13%. So, you know, you've got to be willing to get it wrong a lot of times to get the few where you're going to get it right. That's a different sort of big idea than a platform for next year for a creative, right? And you can't get 87% of them wrong because you wouldn't have a business at the end of it. It's slightly, you've got to cut your cloth to what you're trying to create, but be really clear about what your level of risk appetite is going into it, not coming out of it.
0: It's interesting to hear Philip talk about the big ideas as being long term and how they're often countercultural. He also hints at a couple of themes which we'll hear time and time again that they're hard to find, they involve some risk, and need a bit of looking after, which typically means the luxury of time and or money. In these next clips, we'll hear from both our contributors about how one gets to the big idea. I think it's interesting that they both seem to avoid the cliched view that it's all about inspiration or a sudden eureka moment. First up, Toby talks about creativity. I think it's interesting the metaphor he uses is gardening. Long-term hard work requires patience and nurturing. Philip gives a view of the client side of things, but also stresses the importance of rigour and structure, albeit allowing for some space for some Bezos-style wandering or exploring.
3: There are all kinds of models of how ideas start and where they come from, and who's best place to have them. I think by definition, all ideas start small. It's a person or a small group of people asking themselves a few pertinent questions and allowing themselves to either be in some moments resolutely focused on a particular question or other moments allowing themselves to daydream or you know a night there might be a moment of epiphany. It's misleading to think that an idea is big at conception because at conception all ideas are small. They're seeds right and unlike seeds they have a DNA within them that determines how big the plant or the tree is going to be from the seed. So they might be tiny little flowers that look beautiful for a couple of days and bloom and fade away, or they can grow into kind of massive redwoods that last for hundreds of years, or, you know, and grow into forests and all the rest of it. So I guess our job as creative leaders is less, our kind of leadership is more about nurturing and gardening, if you like, than it is about command and control. You've just got to nurture these seeds and the one thing, I mean, you can't take a small idea and turn it into a big idea. Like if the seed is meant to be a rose, it will never be a forest, but it could be a beautiful sort of little rose. Conversely, you can make a big idea a lot smaller than it should be by not nurturing it properly. You know, there are a lot of saplings that only grow to a certain height when they could be sort of full-sized trees because they haven't been nurtured or protected or allowed to grow in the right way. Um, so, sorry, a very extended metaphor But yeah, everything starts small and then it has the capacity to grow to a certain size and it's recognising how big an idea could be and what it needs to get to that scale. The light bulb
2: moment does not exist. What does exist is a moment of realisation that you might have stumbled on something brilliant. There is no one process to get to them. I always talk to the guys at work about the fantastic Mr Fox. You know, the more burrows he has, the bigger chance he has of escaping the farmer. And it's the true of ideas. If you go down really linear processes and the same process all the time, you will, by definition, get to the same ideas. You've got to try lots and lots of different approaches, lots and different ways, and just be willing, though, to spot it when it comes. So we will purposely, as we're working across our brands, as we're working across projects, force ourselves down different streams of consciousness and force ourselves down to different techniques to try and get to bigger ideas. I'd always have a structure around that. This concept that you'd lie around and it pings into your head is a wonderful idea, but it isn't a reality. And the best creators always have a structure. And I've also found that the more you're willing to work with guys to kick them around, to bait them, to torture test them, to cross-pollinate them, the chances seem to be higher. And actually, brand teams are quite insular and often don't want to share their thinking across different brands, across different groups, across different agencies. And we do a lot of work on what we call the brains trust, which is getting as diverse a group of people from different agencies, from different disciplines, from different places, from different markets, from different locations, to try and work together to get to these ideas. And we always say we don't give them monkeys where it comes from, because that's the hardest thing. This whole lead agency concept, in my view, is totally flawed. You've got to let everybody have the ability to come up with the idea and then agree on it and then slice the cake up and go, right, this is such an amazing idea. There's enough for everyone to get on with here. But if you rely on one agency or one group of people to come up with it, I think your chances are slimmer.
1: These ideas tie into some myths we've seen in our work and innovation over the years. While it's really convenient, there is some lunacy in holding a one-day wacky workshop to fill the pipeline with new ideas. A few years back, we did a study which involved speaking to a number of creatives, an award-winning comedian, a Michelin-starred chef, a Hollywood director, and an author. We asked them in detail about how creativity worked for them. Their answers were all remarkably similar to what we hear about in this podcast. I mean, it's hard work, it takes time, it requires rigour. And a good deal of effort to set the right conditions for creative ideas to be created in the first place and then grown and nurtured. I think it was David Ogilvy who said the role of creativity was to create something that was useful and had value. Everything else he said was just art. I think this is interesting because it brings some much needed realism into the mix. It also says that perhaps the world of creativity is not so exclusive, a bit more accessible to mortals. It's not a lone genius with a light bulb moment but it's attainable through hard work and putting the right structures in place. In these next clips, we hear from our guests about the next part of the puzzle, how to spot good ideas, the ones with potential. We hear first from Toby. I guess in marketing, the first assessment happens before the ideas leave the agency. So it's interesting how he reviews the work. An assessment that's part personal and part commercial, part head and part heart. We hear from Philip who, from a client and leadership perspective, talks about avoiding the temptation to say no almost at all costs. It's a hugely powerful thought. It's so much safer and easier to say no, and yet the world gets smaller when you do. We've often observed that teams are shaped as much by how and when leaders say no as the things they say yes to.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. He also talks about wanting to push the edges and learning, and that the real risk is not getting noticed at all. Imagine how many of those 10,000 commercial messages a day that we just don't notice at all. Think of the utter waste of that. Think of the productivity gains and the millions to be saved. Suddenly, pushing the edges doesn't seem so dangerous. In fact, reframing it that way, it almost feels that playing it safe feels like the crazy thing to do.
3: So as to the process of sorting out the wheat from the chaff and identifying the good ideas from the bad ideas, I don't know of a process for doing that. I think you just look at them as an individual and go does this speak to me does this touch me does this make me want to do something and then you apply the filters of is it true to this brand are we solving a problem and then quite quickly you get into it feels right for the company or the brand if it's solving a problem and it speaks to me and moves me or entertains me those are the three things that I seek in a piece of work or in an idea and then quite quickly you get on to how the hell are we going to make this or have we even got the budget to do something like this how feasible is it yes you have to write a lot more ideas than you make to get to the few that you do make and I think that Robert McKee 90% of what you write is crap and only 10% is worthwhile is probably true and certainly within advertising agencies probably marketing consultancies as well if you write 90% crap and then 10% of it is any good, probably only 10% of that 10% is going to get made. There's many a slip between cup and lip. Things get killed in research, there are budget issues, you know, there are a million reasons for an idea to die. You're probably even looking at 1% of all the ideas you have make it into the world as perfectly formed and as full of potential as they could be. Assessing big ideas is without doubt one of the hardest things to do. It's
2: really easy to see the 1 out of 10s, It's very easy to recognize the six and the sevens out of tens. It's the 10 out of tens, which you're all holding out for, which are the hardest to recognize at times. And what's even harder is giving them the space to come alive. The thing that I always say to myself in all those meetings is don't say no, don't say no, don't say no, because it's so easy to say no, right? There's no risk in saying no. The risk is in saying yes but actually when you think about it the real risk is in doing a six out of ten or a seven out of ten because in today's world they don't deliver anything for you so the way we look at it is we'd rather do a bunch of tens which turn out to be complete donkeys because ultimately the consumer doesn't care really if you do a donkey they just won't notice it they won't care about it and they'll move on the only people who really care is you And so do a donkey, but learn fast that it's a donkey, understand why it's a donkey, and then go again. So I would always much rather that I gave something space, I gave something an opportunity, and it turned out to be wrong, than perpetually going, and ending up in mediocrity. Because, unfortunately, we're a small business, right? Our budgets are minuscule compared to the big boys in the drinks industry. So we've got to do work which has unbelievable cut through, or we don't get noticed. That's how I play them against each other. And Christ, have I had some unmitigated (laughs) donkeys (laughs) over the years. But you know what? I've learned from them. I've moved on. And that's one of the hardest things that I've been working on with the department is how to change their attitude to risk. And we found it all comes down to psychological safety. And when we've got a department who feel unbelievably safe, unbelievably secure, to see this culture of challenge as the most important thing, know that If they get it wrong, we're just going to have a good laugh about it, and a chat about it, and a learn about it. Then they start really wanting to swing big. If you haven't got that culture, then people are hardwired to go for safe. The culture you create is more likely to get you great big ideas than actually the creative process you put in, which I know sounds counterintuitive, but it's certainly what I found to be true.
0: get the impression that both Toby and Philip have something of a challenger mindset. It's something we've often seen in high-performing teams, irrespective of the scale of their business. They treat this sort of challenge with a mindset based on growth. They see the world through the lens of looking to gain, rather than one which is based around trying to avoid loss. This mindset is something that many big businesses might do well to take more to heart. Looking to win, not looking to avoid losing. It changes your approach to creativity, to risk, to investment, and ultimately this impacts performance. I think this sort of mindset is a real trait of a creative leader. Here we have a couple of individuals who want to make the non-linear returns and are accepting that this has to entail a degree of exploration and that sometimes not everything will go according to plan. For those around them, knowing this brings in the idea of psychological safety. This term came to prominence five years ago by some research done by Google under a project named Project Aristotle in which they were looking to try and understand the ingredients to build a perfect team. Trust and safety were the number one issues. And it's something that Philip picks up on in this clip and we'll hear much more of later on.
1: Right, so define big ideas. We've learned about how to create them and the mindset needed to nurture them. But how does one keep them alive? I guess the most successful project teams we've worked with I had a strong sense of what Toby calls momentum, positive energy. Listening to Toby got me thinking that perhaps this is something that one should more actively manage and promote beyond just working to short-term timelines. It would be amazing to be able to create a metric to monitor and maintain the energy of work.
3: We talk quite a lot about keeping ideas alive, and they are organic forms, I guess. So you've got to kind of nurture them and the team behind them. So you've got to keep the positive energy going through. There's a lot about kind of resilience and resourcefulness. So we talk about moving sideways, not backwards. There are always going to be barriers to an idea, getting out into the world. But most of the time, you don't even have to go backwards and start again. Most of the time, you can just move sideways. As long as you keep up the movement, like you might have to spend a couple of weeks or a couple of months going laterally to then find a new way forward. That's fine, you just need to keep that momentum going because as soon as the energy dissipates within the team, it's so difficult to resuscitate. You have to be like the weeds in the pavement, find a little crack and find another crack in the pavement to go through. There's a brilliant graph that shows a sort of process of, um, I guess, motivation and, and sentiment when you're going through a pioneering project and it's the initial excitement and then you go into the valley of despair and then you come out the other end. And we've been through that sort of multiple times over the last four years. But I guess what happens if you, if we're very lucky, we had a very brave client who, unlike a lot of marketers, actually stuck around for sort of more than two years. So we had the kind of collective muscle memory of what those down moments felt like. Or those moments of doubt, so that when we then hit the bumps in the road or the valleys of despair in the next project, we all remember, oh don't worry we've been through this before, it's fine, So I think that kind of a memory of what it feels like, and we've done this before we can do it again, and also the reciprocal trust that comes from that partnership is critical, but it's also a sense of you know you kind of and I don't want to hyperbolize this or make it because it's you know it's advertising marketing it's it's not like we're necessarily saving the world but when you strive and you deliver creative and strategic excellence and you create a piece of work that people are talking about it kind of creates its own legacy both within the advertising agency and within the client organization so that everyone is a keen at the very least not to drop the ball on the next project and to make something inferior and b, if anything to to move it on and see if they can surpass what other teams have done before and so you, you kind of get on the one hand, it's we're all working to the same purpose, but there's almost a sort of sense of internal self-competition, right? How can we do better? But our client, to, to give you an indication of the bravery of our client, there was a point in the Blood Normal campaign where a lot of the media owners, like social media platforms, are saying, we can't show this. This is offensive. It's showing period blood will cause widespread offence. Clearcast cast and, and various regulatory authorities around the world wouldn't let us run it. So the clients basically had commissioned a piece of work that didn't look like it could even run online. And at one point she turned around to us and said, I'm gonna lose my job, but fuck it, let's do it anyway. She knew, well, she believed and she knew it was the right thing to do and that eventually we win people over. So it does take that kind of level of bravery sometimes to avoid turning back, but you just gotta believe in what you're doing.
0: I love the Valley of Despair, or at least the idea of it. There's a tweet from British theatre director Marcus Romner, which I often refer to in our sessions and have shared with many teams over the last few years, and it always resonates. When we did our last startup, I had it above my desk. And I think it's essential to the creation of anything. He observes that there are six stages in the creation of a thing. The first is, this is awesome. The second is, this is tricky. This is shit. I am shit. This might be okay. This is awesome. Many companies give up at stage two when things start to get tricky. Toby talks about how the experience of going through that cycle again and again, going through the tough times together, builds trust and ultimately resilience. We heard from record-breaking pan-Pacific rower Laura Penhole in our episode on emotional intelligence about how resilience can be developed through actively managing a response to tough times. It's not something that I've seen trained or talked about much explicitly, and yet There it is, behind the scenes. It's this cycle, this concept of momentum and resilience. These seem to be the engines of big ideas.
1: Yeah, I think that's the difference from the old command and control model of management, where everything's black and white, right and wrong. There's no room for vulnerability or even honesty, and certainly not mistakes in that model. That's one of the things I've really noticed through these conversations across these podcasts. And even when we wrote the book, the closer somebody is to the top of their game, the more they are relaxed about admitting some of this stuff is hard and that some of the things they do goes wrong. Mistakes are important. The artist Grayson Perry talks about mistakes being your style. I love that reframing, makes it much more positive and accepted. We heard earlier from Philip that the culture around the ideas is more powerful than the process you use to manage them. I think this ties in strongly with our experience in innovation. Process is helpful as it hardwires and formalizes investment decisions into the business. But how the process is managed and used, the behaviours within the process, that's what actually drives culture. Personally, I've always had a bit of an energetic reaction to much of the thinking in this space. It always feels like something which companies want to create wholesale in a project. Culture for me has always been the outcome, of strategy, process and behaviour within them. It's an output, not an input. I really like Philip's way of looking at it. We started off by talking about the Gary Player quote, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. But things quickly turn to how you improve your chances of success. Listen out for the great list of how to create a culture where big ideas can not only survive, but thrive.
2: If you've absolutely nailed a compelling purpose, then your chances are higher. If you really, truly understand the consumer, your chances are higher. If you genuinely understand the cultural trends and moments which are going on in society around you, your chances are higher. If you've got your head out of the office and you're really living in society and in the world and in the environment which your target consumers are living and understanding that, your chances are higher. There's no silver bullet to any of this. You know, if you find a brilliant agency, your chances are higher. You've got to work on the layers and the people who really work on the layers, their chances are higher. Now, you can just be totally lucky sometimes. You just can you know, you just can be completely lucky and not even looking and ping something just comes up. Those are the stories which fairy tales are made of and case studies are written about, but they're few and far between. If you want to have a successful business with a portfolio of brands, you can't rely on the fairy tale. You've got to do the work to try and get consistency across everything versus moments of genius occasionally.
1: The final discussion we had with this pair was around what sort of state the concept of the big idea is in now. How healthy is it today? Marketing has changed and continues to change. And in our conversation, I guess we all had a sense that many businesses, maybe more in the current context, Are losing sight of the power and benefit of big ideas at a time when arguably there's an even bigger role for them to play.
2: The interesting thing about your question is the now because they've always been important and they always will be important. I think the only reason that old farts like me can be CMOs is in the sort of era of the digital world we live in nowadays is because the idea is omnipotent and actually. What's not changed about marketing and what's not changed about television, what's not changed about creativity, is that as humans, we respond to wonderful, creative, engaging, emotional ideas. And actually, that's true in everything. And whilst we have loads more channels, loads more ways, loads more touch points, it is still... The idea at the core of it, which people respond to, which drives the performance of your brand. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that marketeers can make is swapping technology for ideas. Because you put shit through modern technology, you'll still get crap. You've got to put brilliant ideas through modern technology to enable you to engage people in multiple places at multiple times. And it's still the power of the idea which drives the performance, not the technology. It's like a one plus one equals three.
3: If you don't have the idea, don't waste your time. In the pursuit of short-term success and our desire to measure everything and create metrics against which people and businesses and people's careers are judged, there is that rush to go straight from business objectives to kind of short-term results. But I think certainly what we're seeing in response to the COVID-19 crisis is that brands that don't have a big organising core idea have been found wanting. And those that do have an idea that is not just, and this is really important, is not just a comms idea, but is actually a core brand idea, are thriving because they've got built into the way that they see themselves and the place they want to occupy in the world and in society. They have built in the capacity to flex to an unexpected crisis when it's not business as usual and they can flip and Nike can talk about playing sport indoors and Essity, who are the parent company of Bodyform, can switch from making baby diapers to face masks in an instant because they're all about health and hygiene and they understand that. So yeah, I would counsel that now, probably more than ever, the crisis has shown that a big core brand idea that organises everything, like the whole brand experience, you know, the way you would do internal marketing, even recruitment, way beyond just a comms idea is critical. And I think lots of marketers will be looking at the idea that they currently have to over the next 12 months and saying, is this big enough? Is this deep enough? Does this do all the things we need it to is it fit for purpose? Is it future proof? And yeah, the companies that answer those questions successfully, I think will thrive. So in the X, CEO, Chairman of BP, Lord Brand, Book Connect. He talks a lot about IBM redefining itself as smarter for a smarter planet. And they were already, IBM, obviously they lost out in personal computing to Microsoft and Apple, but they were already doing so much of that infrastructure computing anyway. It was just finding a way to describe that, that A made sense and B was appealing. And I think within two years of introducing it, their share price was up by 50%. They became one of the top five most desirable companies to work for, having been sort of considered a dinosaur. I don't think they necessarily overnight changed hell of a lot of what they were doing but they had a banner to march under gave everyone internally pride that made sense to investors and made sense to the wider world and that is the value of a really concise and insightful core brand idea everyone gets it and everyone
0: wants to be part of it so there we have it i think it's a nice way to round things off i have to say I think that one of the lessons from COVID is just how weak many brands really are. Hit with the same external stimulus, everyone has reacted in the same way. First to be scared and then to see hope. These have been the two phases of COVID ads that we've seen. We're seeing the same in the moment in the US around the George Floyd tragedy. Brands that don't know what they're about are taking a view on something that they've never spoken about, just in case. To me, that's woke washing of the worst kind. I'll take it from Nike, and I think the connection that Adidas has made with their biggest rival is awesome. But shampoo? Banks? Why? There's an old Warren Buffett quote that it's only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. I think there are quite a few businesses who need to be looking around for some big ideas shaped swimming gear.
1: Yeah, I have to agree. It feels like the big idea is a concept for now more than ever. I love the thought that while the world of marketing and tech have changed everything, the need and power of big emotionally engaging ideas is the one constant. So look, over and above that, it won't surprise you, Nick, to know that I've also been pulling together some thoughts about what we've learned today. Excellent. I'm going to share them with you. So firstly, my first take out was big ideas are critical to get noticed because getting noticed now is harder than ever. Secondly, big ideas have bigger returns, but they're harder to plan for and they're harder to find. There's fewer of them out there. They also carry more risk, both upside and downside. On that thought, it's definitely worth thinking about Philip's provocation the biggest risk is doing average work, which no one notices, because it still takes time and money to do. Thirdly, to get to big ideas, you might have to kill a few bad ones along the way. That's not failure, that's just the nature of the game. Fourthly, big ideas don't start big, they need nurturing and they may take a while. But the good news is they should be around for a while too. Toby talked about three to four year overnight success, and Philip talked about the 20 years it's taken to build Hendricks Gym to scale. And finally, the good news is I think you can increase your chances of success just by putting in place some basics, like having an external facing view of the world to help understand the real context in which your idea will operate. Avoiding the temptation to say no too early. Being accepting that not every idea is a winner, but look to learn and improve rather than judge. Be accepting of head and heart decision making, but also trust your agencies and give them space to operate. The result of these things in combination is culture.
0: Nicely done. I think it's a good list. I don't have much to add. So with that, we do hope that you enjoyed it and got something useful from all of this. And without sounding like the current generation of COVID ads, we wish you every success tackling the opportunities which may emerge. It's a massive thanks to Toby and to Philip for their openness and their honesty and their time and their thoughts. And as ever, please do get in contact and let us know if there are topics or people you think we should be speaking to how and where we might improve things.